I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Sadie Babbitts. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 5th. Coming up with World Oceans Day and the March for the Ocean events happening later this week, we'll discuss today efforts to protect our imperiled oceans. We'll focus especially on marine protected areas. What's working, what's not, and why. And our guest today is Dr. Kirsten Grorud-Colvert. She's a marine ecologist at Oregon State University. Before we jump into our feature interview, I want to welcome Sadie Babbitts as a guest host on the show. She's a seasoned radio journalist and was the news director at Colorado Public Radio for several years. And she's just finished a Ted Scripps Environmental Journalism Fellowship at CU Boulder. Welcome, Sadie. Thanks, Susan. It's really great to be here. So before we dive into our feature on ocean health, we have a front-range science calendar item to point out. Next Monday, June 11th, Cafe Scientifique will host a talk on immunology and its role in potentially revolutionizing medicine. John Cohen, a professor of immunology and microbiology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, will talk about recent developments in the study of how the immune system plays a role in keeping many of us free of cancer, or at least helping us defeat cancer. Dr. Cohen will discuss the various ways in which so-called monoclonal antibodies are being modified to treat diseases, including those like migraine and hemophilia, that have nothing to do with immunology. His talk will also cover gene-modified T-cells, which are made to kill tumor cells, and how antibodies together with T-cells are dramatically changing the face of cancer therapy. This event will be held at the Blake Street Tavern at 2301 Blake Street in Denver. That's close to Coors Field. The event will start at 630. to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade he'd let us in You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Sadie Babbitts. Today is World Environment Day, and Friday, June 8th, is World Oceans Day. And the March for the Oceans happens this Saturday, June 9th, in many communities across the country. So this week, we have water, especially oceans, on our mind. As temperatures rise in our landlocked state, and many of us, myself included, long to go swimming in the ocean. We'll focus today on the health of the oceans and efforts to protect fish and other species and their marine habitats. What's working, what's not, and why? And what can we in landlocked states like Colorado do to become part of the solution? And if you're wondering, what's this have to do with me right here in Colorado? Well, just think that many of our waterways, streams, and rivers that flow through Colorado are either heading to the Gulf of Mexico or to the Pacific Ocean. One of the biggest tools in the Marine Conservation Toolkit has been designating Marine Protected Areas, or MPAs. Loosely defined, these are areas in the ocean where little or no fishing or other extraction activities takes place so that fish and other species and their critical habitats can thrive. Successful ones are a win for conservation and a win for fisheries. And that's because protected reserves attract more fish to surrounding areas, which means more fish stock where fishing is allowed. 
Our guest today is a marine ecologist who studies what happens when you protect an area in the ocean and based on data, how we can improve ways to protect ocean habitats and species. Dr. Kirsten Grorud-Colvert joins us from her office at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. Dr. Grorud-Colvert, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me. Well, it's so great to have you with us today. And we really wanted to start by taking a little trip this morning. If we were going to be out on a boat in one of these marine protected areas, maybe along the coast of Oregon, say, where there are MPAs, what would it be like? Well, here off our Oregon coast, we have a very dynamic, very wild, very beautiful ocean. So when you look out on shore, um, you may not necessarily see anything different about these MPAs from the surface, but it's really when you dive below the surface that you're able to get a sense of what these parks in the ocean really can do. And here in Oregon and in many places around the world, these MPAs, as we call them, are established primarily for the conservation of nature. So their main goal is protecting the species that are inside. So that one is specifically one off Oregon. Like, What are not all the species, but what would we be looking at? Well, here in Oregon, we have a group of species that are quite interesting and amazing, and those are the rock fishes, and that's one of the species, groups of species that I study. And these are incredibly long-lived fish. They can live more than 100 years, actually. And they tend to be in shallow areas. So this makes them a great candidate for protection inside marine protected areas because they are in that specific place and protecting that prevents them from, for example, being targeted by fishing when they're in that area. And what's an example of one of the designated places that's been quite successful, you know, that years later data show there's quite a distinct difference between the before and after. And does size matter? Yes. Well, worldwide, we actually know quite a bit about marine protected areas because there are quite a few of them in terms of fully protected areas, so areas that are completely protected from any extractive or destructive activities. You know, there are, you know, thousands worldwide. In terms of how uh, how they accomplish their goals, um, being fully protected is an important part of that because it means that whether they're big or small, the species while they're inside that area are protected from anything that could harm them, some things like fishing or mining or other extractive activities. And we have a range of sizes worldwide. For example, even in our own country, We have our largest marine protected area, which is in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. It's called Papahanaumokuakea. Say that again? Yeah, (laughs) Papahanaumokuakea. Well done. That must have 50 vowels in it. For first thing in the morning. Yes, so that is our largest marine protected area. It was established actually by President Bush in 2006, and President Obama uh, more than doubled its size in 2016. So this is a large marine protected area, fully protected, no take is allowed, and it's an incredible treasure for our country. 
One of our uh, science agencies, NOAA, in 2015 did an expedition to some of the atolls in that area and found that 100% of the species were endemic, which means they're not found anywhere else in the world. Uh-huh. So protecting that area ensures that they won't be damaged by bottom trawling or other forms of destructive um, practices to the ocean floor. Kirsten, how much of the ocean is protected by marine protected areas? That is an excellent question. And um, we have been working quite carefully to document and be able to answer that, that exact thing. So we know uh, today that 4% of the ocean is protected in any type of marine protected area. And when we say MPA, it's really kind of an all-encompassing term. MPA can mean anything from fully protected areas like we were just talking about all the way through to areas that may only regulate one thing. They allow one, um, you know, one, you know, relatively intense form of fishing um, and may regulate other things. So that's 4% of the ocean worldwide. In terms of those that are fully or highly protected, we're at about 2%. And you would want to get, I know you were a co-author on a recent study looking at a lot of different studies and data about what, what, what percent should it be and how realistic are these targets. Talk about, so if it's really 2% that are highly protected, that's highly protected now, what should it be and by what scientific evidence? Yes. Well, in terms of what should it be, there's actually um, two ways of looking at that at this very moment. The first is what countries have committed to protecting um, by a certain time. So in that, I'm referencing the Convention on Biological Diversity. Which is a United Nations body, right? That's right. That is right. And with the sole focus on the conservation of biodiversity globally. Um, A target was set by that international body uh, to protect 10% of the ocean by 2020. And in fact, um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for the first time includes an ocean goal as well. And that one, Goal 14, has the same target, 10% of the ocean protected by 2020. So um, governments and countries have committed to achieving that target. It's right around the corner now that we're in 2018. Yeah, a year and a half away, but who's counting? (laughs) That's right. And um, beyond that, in the scientific community, because um, I'm an ecologist and study marine habitats and the species that use them, the ocean is incredibly diverse with many habitats and many species. So if we want to adequately protect a representative amount of those habitats that species rely on, then actually we're looking more closely at about 30% to be required to meet that goal. So meaning 30% of the oceans should be protected in order to meet these biodiversity goals? That's right. And that's a big jump from what the UN is calling for. Yes, that's right. And then in terms of actually tracking where we are with the 10%, um, kind of the reason for the paper that Susan um, alluded to earlier is that last summer there was a big ocean conference at the United Nations. One of the goals was to report back on progress towards these international targets. 
And the press releases that were coming out were saying about 6% of the ocean is protected. And the UN Environment Program, which tracks protected areas worldwide, actually as of today, this morning, says 7% of the ocean is protected. And for those of us who are doing a careful accounting of marine protected areas globally, um, that was a big surprise to see that number. A surprise because it's an overestimation? That's right. Uh-huh. And so it kind of begs the question to me, it's sort of like all the cities and states and some countries having CO2 emissions reductions targets and cities that set their targets, which seems like a great thing, but can we be deluded by numbers? And is there some counter, something counterproductive about actually having targets? Or would you say without them and ones that you're calling for, we're just telling a handbasket. Yeah. I think it's natural to set goals. <laughs> we all set goals for ourselves, and I see this in the same way. But how we account for it, um, you know, this would be like saying, I'm going to lose 20 pounds tomorrow, and then saying, okay, I did it, without having to put in the work for it. <laughs> and what we talk about in our paper is the fact that this number that, you know, was being presented on the stage of the United Nations, in fact, includes some areas that wouldn't actually meet the definition of a marine protected area. Such as which what? Is, yeah, which is an area that is designated primarily for the long-term conservation of nature. So there are fisheries management areas, for example, that may, you know, regulate fishing as many MPAs do, but the primary goal of those is not to conserve nature. So we wouldn't expect them, for example, to adequately protect all species um, when preserving fishing is their goal. The other piece of the puzzle is that some of these MPAs that are getting tallied up have been proposed um, often at high-level conferences, like the Our Ocean Conference, which is a global meeting of heads of state to make commitments about protecting the ocean. They'll make a proposal or even designate by writing into law a marine protected area. But it can be a very lengthy process between that and actually getting protection in the water. And some snags can happen along the way. And so um, our point is that what's implemented should be what's counting towards uh, how near we are to those goals. And certainly enacting what's been proposed and getting in the water what has been designated will get us closer. But uh, we don't want to uh, count our fish before we catch them. <laughs> So what is the Trump administration doing on this front? Well, one of the primary focuses in our country right now is on our marine national monuments. And um, we have a great history in our country of protecting public lands and um, even more recently, public lands underwater, so our underwater spaces. We have um, five marine national monuments, and those can be designated actually by executive order. So a president can um, designate a marine national monument. Of our five, um, they have been under review. Uh, president Trump asked Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke to do a review of our marine national monuments, um, not only those, but also our terrestrial monuments. 
Um, most recently, this resulted in um, the downsizing of two national monuments in Utah. And now, um, Secretary Zinke has made a recommendation to President Trump to downgrade and decrease protected areas in three of our marine national monuments. How, how much are we talking about? Yes, we don't know exactly how much. We do know that um, there will be announcements at some point. We don't know exactly what that announcement will be. And we do know that one of the recommendations that will likely be accepted is to add um, industrial commercial fishing into these three marine national monuments. Wondering if there's some analogy also to say Nature Conservancy and other conservation groups have said, look, we're not going to get pristine nature. It's unrealistic. Let's work with working farms and ranches to preserve what's there of biodiversity to try to, I don't know, galvanize or support sustainable practices. So is there, I don't know, a happy medium or some marriage of so-called sustainable, I know that's as fuzzy a word as MPAs, but sustainable fisheries and conservation efforts such as MPAs? Yes, and actually that is really the forefront of um, where our field is going and how we're thinking about marine protection, primarily because so many of the global population rely on food from the sea for their primary source of protein, and also it's a huge source of jobs and income worldwide. So sustainability of fishing and other products from the sea is certainly the goal. And what's been really encouraging is that, especially in smaller communities, there was an earlier question about big versus small, does size really matter? Um, the answer is uh, a suite of options is really best. And part of that is because some smaller MPAs, like let's say 15 square miles, many of them fall into that category, are near to coastal communities. And there are places around the world, some in the Mediterranean, some in Mexico specifically come to mind, where a community will designate an area as a no-take reserve and it's established primarily for augmenting the fishing outside. So by protecting an area and the individual species and fish and mollusks and other things inside, the likelihood of them increasing in number, growing bigger, and then producing more young increases. And when they produce more young, because the way that animals work in the seas, they release those young and they often drift far from where they're um, where their adult population is. So basically, if uh, you know anglers or fishing industry can have delayed gratification, the reward is bigger down the road because you have more fish that are actually of fishable legal size, right? Yes, that's right. It's an insurance policy of sorts. Yeah. And um, that has played out in places around the globe. Thank so you. I'm going to take a little uh, station break here. You're listening to KGNU Community Radio in Denver, Boulder, and Fort Collins. I'm here with my co-host, Sadie Babbitts, and we're talking with Dr. Kirsten Grorud-Colvert. She's a, an assistant professor at Oregon State University, a marine ecologist there. We'll continue now with our discussion about marine protected areas and other efforts to clean up our oceans. One of the questions that comes to mind as we're talking about these marine protected areas is is how do you enforce 
the, the legal requirements around them. How do you go about truly protecting them? Because we're out in the ocean. It's a ton of a ton of water. <laughs> how, how what are the what are the enforcement measures that are in place for these MPAs? Yes. Well, part of the reason why we're seeing a range in sizes of MPAs is because in the past, really the only way that an area could be, you know, effectively monitored to make sure that um, the rules were being complied with was to have a size that was manageable. And so many MPAs fit into that category. Now we have actually... Uh, kind of group of large MPAs worldwide that are just, you know, they pose just that challenge. They're huge, and no one boat or, you know, fl small fleet of boats could adequately um, monitor that. So what's been a really exciting development in the field of um, combining technology with ecology and um, with marine protected areas is um, using satellite and remote sensing to um, get a sense of where boats are. Um, there's something called Globing, Global Fishing Watch, which is available to anyone. You could log on now and look and see where boats are worldwide. And so the goal is to use that to then pinpoint if a boat is in an area doing an unusual thing. And then that would be the point where, you know, uh, someone could be deployed or that ship would be contacted and then... Um, any potential action could be taken. So we're really moving into uh, a new era of monitoring and enforcing and thinking about these large MPAs. And I'm curious, I know you're a scientist, not a policymaker, but you're clearly right in this intersection um, between you know, science and policy and public engagement and seem really concerned about that. So I want to ask you, if you had a magic wand and could wave it, like what are two or three things that you would do or would make sure the rest of the world, at least the United States does, to ensure that the ocean is more protected and somewhere near this 30% by 30-30 target? I think my first um, wish would be actually very simple, and that's to have greater clarity about uh, what an MPA is when it is proposed or designated, and then uh, greater accountability for uh, what that means, whether it accurately reflects our international targets and um, what our science targets likely should be. And let me just stop you there. So greater accountability for governments, for the fisheries industry, for all the above? Um, I think I would focus first on the former, just because it is these governments that are making the proclamations, and um, to be able to link those proclamations to what might, mean, what might we expect based on the protection level. If it's only very lightly protected, that serves a goal, but we shouldn't conflate that with you know, the goal of achieving long-term conservation of nature. They likely won't line up. If the goal is to do that, then having a fully protected or highly protected area is more appropriate. So first, having accountability and the mindset to think beyond just lines on a map, but what is actually happening there. Mm -hmm. So those of us who are, are landlocked or even coastal dwellers, what are a couple of things that we can do to make a difference? 
Well, that's a question that's dear to my heart because I grew up in Arizona. So I also grew up in a landlocked location. And and a hot one. And a hot one, yes. I um, was happy to, uh, I'm now happy to be in an ocean state. But I do think that this is a national conversation. In fact, this week is Capitol Hill's Ocean Week in Washington, D.C., and that actually anyone can access the conversation happening there. It's, there's a live stream for it on from Capitol Hill. And our elected officials are making a lot of decisions about this, and I think it's e- easier than ever to be able to contact them, whether it's writing a letter to your elected officials, following the conversations and being informed. And in this day and age, you can tweet to the president, you can tweet to Secretary Zinke, especially during this um, upcoming World Oceans Day. Um, If you value our marine national monuments and other protected areas, you know, let your elected officials know. So I would say that, but that I would also kind of balance that with saying that, for me, my love of the ocean came from first as a child reading books about it and then experiencing it. And a very simple thing, I think, could be to buy a book for a kid that you know about the ocean. Just last night, my seven-year-old showed me a library book about coral reefs and was amazed. That's great gets at an understanding of what we're talking about when we mean protecting ocean biodiversity. And and we haven't even broached the whole issue of plastics and not using straws and such. We've had people on the show previously, and we'll we'll do that as another segment. Um, We've got time for just one more. So do you have much hope for the world's oceans? Well, I have seen... um, even in my time in this field, amazing progress, and that's an important point. Some of these MPAs have been around for decades, but really in the last 10 years, there's been a huge increase in the number of marine protected areas worldwide. So there is a sea change, if you will, in terms of understanding how important our ocean is, how important it is to protect ecosystems and protect ocean health. So we are we're moving forward, and if we want to get to these targets and to true ocean protection, we just have to up the pace. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's great. That was Dr. Kristen Grorud-Colvert. She's a marine biologist at Oregon State University. You can find out about these events. Lots of them are happening this week here on the Front Range included by going to marchfortheocean.org. You can also go to bluefront.org, and we'll have more info on our website later. And in Boulder, the Colorado Ocean Coalition has a March for the Ocean on Saturday from 12 noon to 1.30. That starts at the Farmer's Market on 13th Street. And you can learn more about the event on the Colorado Ocean Coalition's Facebook page. It's just one of several marches happening across the country to raise awareness about the effect of petrochemicals, plastics, and other pollutants that can be found in drinking water and coastal seas. And for more information on World Oceans Day events, go to worldoceansday.org slash events. And uh, again, we'll post some links and resources on howonearthradio.org.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Beatles. Visit howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Sadie Babbitts. 